Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues through a new series that focuses on the family. The series is called Families by the Book. In this series, we take a look at what real biblical parenting looks like in the home. Today's talk is titled The Dance, Part 2. It is a continuation from last week's. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, man, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 once again. Remember, this is the dance part 2. Husbands, if you missed last week, ladies, you're just going to have to go and pick it up online. We have podcasts on Apple, Android, wherever else Brad puts it. We have our messages also on our website. Feel free to check them out there. But this is meant to be a two-part message. We're not meant to divide these any more than we need to. This is called the dance because often when we look at a couple who is, is dancing, I'm not talking about you know, modern dance as much as I am, you know, a waltz, a foxtrot, that kind of thing. You see just the beauty of this couple working together in harmony. Uh, they're enjoying one another. They're creating a thing of great beauty. So the dance part two, as we begin, let's transport back once again to Clear Lake High School Gymnasium, 1988, where Heath is first learning how to do some of this uh, dancing thing, which I never grew up doing because I, well, I grew up in a Baptist church. So, and so I was, I was actually kind of nervous if this was even wrong for me to do, but we learned how to waltz. I mean, there wasn't this, this, this sensual dancing. It was just your, your waltz, your foxtrot, your, uh, oh, what did we have, box step, uh, I think we even had a jitterbug thrown in there from time to time. And so there was just these, these old-timey dances. We, we even uh, square danced. There was just, it was a time where boys and girls, we got together and learned how to behave in a civilized way. We weren't throwing balls at each other anymore. You know, in dodgeball, we were having to play nicely with the opposite sex. And something I learned is that just because you take a boy in gym class and you make him do a dance segment doesn't mean it doesn't still have to be a competitive sport. Okay, so you got some of these guys, they get a little bored with just kind of this box stepping, you know, and you're just going in this box step, you know, back and forth. And some of the guys decided, you know, with some of these other dances, you're kind of, you know, parading across the floor. So some of them decided, you know, how fast can I take this girl? How many laps can we do? You know, can I chase my buddy across the way? And when that got a little old, there was always the time-honored tradition of taking your female partner you're with and running it into another couple. That was always worth a laugh and a high five from the guys. But what I found out is the guys were having a good time there, but the girls were upset. They came in there and they're listening intently and they're wanting to create this beauty and this grace and the guys weren't taking it seriously. I think what happened is, we entered into this dance segment with very different expectations. Uh, the, the guys just wanted to have a good time and frankly get back to football. The girls, they were wanting to, they were hoping that they'd be paired up with a guy who would be sensitive to their feelings, they would dance with grace with them, they would lead them carefully, and at the, I think at the baseline, protect them from serious bodily injury. That's, that was their expectation. And as we look at marriage, I think sometimes we do the same thing. We enter into marriage sometimes with different expectations. You know, and quite often, just in my experience, the ladies, when we talk about the home, they're in 
they're tuned in. They want this marriage and this home to be a place of sensitivity and love and grace and fluid and beauty. And guys, we're just happy, you know, that she puts food in front of me from time to time. We're happy that just the bills get paid. And, and so sometimes men and women, we see life differently and we can enter into marriage with differing expectations and that can cause us to collide and that can cause some trouble there. So. When we want to learn about the expectations of the home, we can't just pull the woman, we can't just pull the man, we gotta ask God, because God is the one who created the home. Not society, this isn't just herd mentality, the home is a divine institution, and so when we figure out what men are supposed to be like in the home, what women are supposed to be like in the home, we have to go to God. Ephesians chapter five, beginning in verse 25, we're gonna see three roles here that God has called men to. The first one is that of a lover. In verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives. You say, well, I do love my wife. Not how you think you should be loving her, but in what way? As Christ loved the church. That's our example. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, let me just share with you, your wives, as grateful as she is for your hard work, did not marry you for your money. She did not marry you for your ability to change the oil in the car or the spark plugs or to fix that annoying squeaky hinge in the house. She married you out of love. She was hoping for companionship. She's hoping for a relationship. She's looking for an intimacy from the husbands. She wants her husband to love her. And, and frankly, that's a fair expectation, isn't it? Because that's what's here in Ephesians 5. The very first command when God said, if you do nothing else, husbands, you have to do this. You have to love your wives. You've got to be her lover. You know, this isn't the Oregon Trail. Who's with me? You know, Oregon Trail, what happens? You've got these people making a tough journey and just bad things happened. You know, well, my wife died of dysentery. Who else we got here in this here wagon train, you know, who can cook and clean and I can put a roof over her head? And that's, that's an Oregon Trail kind of thing. We're not there, right, where it's just this transactional relationship. I do my job and she does her job, but we can sometimes enter into Oregon Trail relationships at home, can't we? By the way, I just, what I just described was like the plot of, have you ever seen the movie Love Comes Softly? Men, have your wives drug you into watching that movie before? It's essentially this lady's on a wagon train. Her husband uh, falls off a horse. He hits his head on a rock and dies. And literally while she is weeping on the grave of her recently deceased husband in the rain, no less, this guy comes up and gives her one of the greatest pickup lines of all time. He says, good evening, ma'am. I have a proposition for you. If figure if we marry, we can solve both of our problems. You'll have a roof over your head. All your needs will be met. And my missy, well, she'll have a mama. That's romance, Oregon Trail style. It's just a transaction. You need a roof over your head. My missy needs a mama. And if we work together, this, you know, at least our needs are going to be met. And you can be satisfied with that. But that isn't what God wants us to be satisfied with, not just to be in an organ trail relationship where she does her part, I do my part, out of necessity we live together, but frankly, there's not much intimacy there. And for some women, your life may start out as a Hallmark movie, but you find yourself on the Oregon Trail, right? You know, you, you share a mailbox, you drink out of the same milk carton, uh, on a given night, you know, you sleep in the same bed, but for all practical purposes, that's about where the intimacy ends. He, he does his work, I do my work, he takes out the trash, I wash the dishes, he does this, I do that, and it's transactional. But the love just kind of 
just kind of petered. Does God expect love to peter out, by the way? Oh, it's quiet now, isn't it? <laughs> Does God expect, do you want God's passion for you to peter out? No, I want God to be just as excited and passionate about me as the day I got saved. And friends, he is. But I've had people actually, I've had a man in my church one time actually come to me after a service like this and say, you know what? I don't think it's right that you're preaching this. God doesn't expect us to be all lovey with us, our wives, like we were when we were dating. We mature into this grizzled old feature, the end of that we see here. We're supposed to mature into this kind of relationship. And by the way, a year later, he left his wife. God doesn't expect love to go stale in the home because Jesus' love doesn't grow stale for us. It doesn't diminish where the Bible talks about our salvation as being uh, an inheritance, imperishable and undefiled, and it never diminishes, it never rots, it never decays. And so God doesn't expect for husbands and wives' relationships just to go flat. Husbands, we are lovers. Now, what does it mean that we're to love our wife? Now, the, the Greek language, there are four different, a lot of times you only hear three, but there are actually four different language, words for love in the Greek language. The first is eros, we get the word erotic. It refers to physical attraction. The second one is storge love, the one you don't often hear. Uh, it's where we get the word stork. You know, legend has it that storks deliver babies to the houses, right? We get that because storge love is, a, is what the Bible translates as natural affection. It's the kind of affection that family, we have a natural affection among us because we're blood. It's the affection that a mother would show to her child, that's storge love. Then there's phileo love, what women are commanded to do for their husbands in Titus chapter two. Phileo love is brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's, it's considered a strong affection for Jesus when he was weeping at Lazarus' funeral. The people looked at him, they said, look how he phileo, look how he loves, how strong an affection he had for Lazarus. And then we have that word agape. This is unconditional love. This is the love that God shows us. First John 4, 8 says that God is love. The reason God loves us is because that's who he is. He cannot not love because it, it just comes from his character. So even when we're faithless, the Bible says he remains faithful. God loves because it's who we are. It's a love of the will. It's a conscious choice to find delight in someone. That's how God loves us. Now, multiple choice, men, quiz. Which one of these four loves do you think God is talking about here when he says, husbands, love your wives? Eros? No, no, wrong. Keep going. <laughs> it's the last one. It's agape. It is a love of the will. It's a love of choice. It's a willful choice to find delight in that woman that God has provided you. And because it's agape love, do you know what that means? It means that our love of our wife is not dependent upon her character. It's not dependent upon her keeping up her end of the bargain. Well, she isn't respectful to me. Well, she's contentious. Well, she's this or she's that and she's changed. So I shouldn't have to love her because she's not doing her job. She won't follow me as a leader, so why should I love her? We love as God did. He initiated that love. Long before we loved God, what did he do? He loved us. Bible says, Romans 6, 23, while we were still sinners, still in rebellion against God, how did he, what did he do? He died for us. He died in our place. And so, men, we don't need anything from our wives to show love. All we need is the example of God. All we need is the love of Jesus in our hearts. And we can show that willful choice to love our wives. We see that kind of love from God in Isaiah chapter 44, verse two. Listen how we see how God has chosen to find delight 
in Israel. He says, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you, fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. God is demonstrating agape love here. Was Israel always good to God? Oh, good night. Just look through numbers as they're traveling through the wilderness. Ah, we're sick of this bread. Oh, we have no more water. I wish we were back under the slavery of Egypt. Israel wasn't always good to God. Did God still love them? Not only did God love them, but in Isaiah here, he says, I have chosen you. I have chosen to find delight in you. And where do we see the delight part? It's in that little word, Jeshurun. What is that? Have you heard that term before? Jeshurun, it's God's pet name for Israel. Did you know God had a pet name for Israel? A pet name shows familiarity, it shows a special bond and an intimacy. Jeshurun means my little upright one. Even though Israel wasn't always upright. Sort of like, you know, you call this huge guy tiny. You know, it was God calling Israel, Jeshurun, my upright one. It's a pet name. It shows familiarity. It shows intimacy. It shows closeness that God has chosen to have this kind of intimacy with him. And in following God's example, I think every man needs to find a warmth and tenderness of the soul to have a pet name for his loved one. Do you have a pet name for your wife? Go ahead, let's just all tell me what your pet name is. You know? <laughs> Go ahead, Kevin, tell me what your pet name of Wanda is. We're not gonna ask you to do that for real, but I think every man needs a warmth of the soul not just to refer to his wife by her full legal name. You're having lunch together. Oh, Amber Bauer, would you please pass the rolls? Thank you, Amber. It just feels so stilted, like it's polite, but it doesn't show a warmth of relationship. So that's assignment number one for you this week. If you don't have a pet name for your loved one, you go home and you think about it. And I don't care if it's something simple and, and normal is like honey, babe, sweetheart, dear, uh, or if you wanna go full on snookums, pudding. Uh, I don't care, but find a pet name and then try it out. It's gonna feel weird, but try it out. Try calling her something other than just what you might call the cashier over at the food fair. It shows a tenderness, it shows a warmth, it shows that you have chosen to put your affection on her. Now it says here, when Jesus loved the church, Ephesians says that he gave himself up for her. When he gives himself up, it means to deliver over to the power of, when did Jesus deliver himself over to the power of anybody? It was at the cross, wasn't it? Jesus, when he was arrested, they didn't take him by force, by the way. Remember when they said, you know, are you Jesus? He says, I am. It, by, your Bible might say, I am he, but in the Greek, it just says, I am. I am Yahweh, the, the self-existent one. And when he does that, the entire complement of soldiers falls down. Jesus didn't go with him because he was forced. He didn't stay on the cross because of the nails that held him there. It was his love for us. He willingly gave himself over to the power of another to sacrifice what he wants to do so he can do what's best for us. Did Jesus really enjoy being nailed to the cross? Did somehow he not feel what we felt? No, the Bible says that he was tested in every way as we are and yet without sin. He was fully 100% man. Everything you would feel being nailed to the cross, Jesus felt, and he didn't look forward to it, by the way, being separated from God. What did Jesus pray right before he went to the cross? God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be yours. So Jesus surrendered himself over to the will of the Father to sacrifice his very life to do what is needful for his bride. And now the Bible says, love your wives as Christ loved the church men 
even as he gave himself over. What does that look like for a man to give himself over? We give ourselves over to the power of another, to God, to choose to love the way our lives the way that God told us to love them, the way that he loved the church. He sacrifices for his wife's desires and for his needs, for her needs. He gives up what is good for him to do what's best for her. Remember reading a story in junior high? You ever read short stories by O. Henry? lit teachers. Uh, I loved O. Henry because he always kind of had these gotcha endings at the end of his stories. And so we, there's one story, probably one of his more famous ones, it's called The Gift of the Magi. And in that, you've got this, cup, this young couple, Jim and Della, and they're struggling with their finances, but Christmas time is rolling around, and so you want to do something nice for one another. And so what Jim does is he takes his most precious possession, which is this antique pocket watch, and he pawns it off so he can buy his wife a set of tortoise shell combs. Evidently, that's what everybody wanted in 1906, right? Ladies, tortoise shell combs. So he does that. He gives up his most prized possession so that she can have this lovely gift at Christmas time. And if you know how the story ends, Christmas rolls around, and as the wife is opening up her gift of tortoise shell combs, what does is, what is old Jim realize and notice at that time? Because he's a man, he doesn't realize when his wife changes her hairstyle. He notices that she has cut off all her hair. Why would a woman cut off all her hair? Well, she was selling it so that she could buy him a gift. And guess what gift she bought him? A chain for his pocket watch. And so what happened here, this is an example of what it looks like to take what is most precious to me. I sacrifice my desires. I sacrifice what's good for me. And I give it over to the blessing of this woman, not knowing, by the way, that she's doing the very same thing for him in this particular story. Man, what does it look like for us to do that? You may not be, you may not even own a pocket watch and she, your wife probably doesn't care about a set of combs. And if she did, she didn't want you to pick them out. That's true. Don't buy her clothes. She knows what she wants. But um, what can we do for our wives to, to lay our lives down to do what's best for her? It might mean that we spend less money on what we want. We don't buy new tires for the ATV. Instead, we, we, we give that money to our wife to buy that chair she's been wanting for the living room. Maybe it means that I don't go out on this hunting trip or I don't go out paintballing so that I can send my wife out with her friends to do something for once, not with the children. Maybe it means that uh, I make sure that her car is filled up with gas and I'm busy, but I stop and I fill it up for her or it's fall, it's gonna get cold again. What's gonna happen to the windows of your wife's car? Very soon, men, get it out. You need to get the scraper, get you a good industrial one because you know what would really show a lot of love to her? Not making your wife go out and scrape her own windshield. That's why I said get you good industrial ones. You can clean that up quick, you know. But take care of that for her. Yes, it's a lot of work. Yes, it takes time. But you lay down your life for her so as not to inconvenience her, not to make her life difficult. When somebody has to get uncomfortable and get out of the bed to check on the door to make sure it's locked. Husbands, don't nudge your wife. You hear a bump in the night. Hey, honey, go check it out. Here's the shotgun. I hope you're not laughing because that's true. (laughs) We don't do that. We put ourselves in harm's way. We say, lock yourself in, honey, and we go and check out the raccoon that's digging out in our trash, you know? But that's what we do. We lay our lives down for her. What is beneficial for me, what I want to do, we lay it down. The Bible says, this is how Jesus loved us. He gave himself over to the power of the Father and did what the Father desired, which is what's best for the bride, not what's best for Jesus. This is what it looks like to agape your wife to put her needs before you. Men, does your wife feel like you do that? How can you figure that out? It's not rocket science, right? How do I wanna know if our wife feels like we love her? 
you ask her. And again, you're gonna have to give her permission to speak freely because she may not feel the freedom of soul to do that. You let her know, I'm not gonna correct you, I'm not gonna interrupt you, I'm not gonna tell you why you're wrong. I'm just gonna thank you for sharing what's on your heart, but you can share freely. Babe, do you feel like I love you, truly? Do you feel like I put your needs before myself? And then you just listen for the answer and you thank her that she was open enough to share that with you. And so men, God has called us to love our wives. Number two, he has called us to be a leader. Last week we talked about the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. Well, what does that look like exactly? A leader means that you're initiating things, you're starting things, you see things that are important that need to be done and you make sure it gets done. Men, can I tell you, if you're not initiating anything in the home, a man who initiates nothing is leading nothing. We make sure that important things happen in our home. Truth is, we already do it though, don't we? You make sure that your wife gets that oil changed in her car every 3,000 miles or however often you do it. You make sure that gets done. You make sure the driveway gets cleared off. You make sure the mortgage bill gets paid. You make sure the electric is paid because if it's not, you're not watching Monday Night Football. Okay, you're making sure the important things get done. That's initiation. The truth is we initiate the things that we think are important to us. Well, the Bible says there's something else very important that God expects the man to be initiating within the home, not the woman, but the man. It's found in verse 26. Remember, this is how Christ loved the church as an example for how we should love our wives. So Jesus did this, and we should be doing this for our wives and our families. That he might sanctify her, that means to set apart for God, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men, God is calling us to be spiritual leaders. And I think, I'm thanking God for every man who is doing that this morning by bringing their families here to church. We, God has called us to be a spiritual leader, and that goes all the way back to creation, by the way, before the fall. God created man and woman unlike the rest of the creation. He creates man first, not the woman, gives man the command to work, then he gives man the spiritual command. You see a tree in the middle of the garden, it looks really good, right, yeah? Don't eat it. The day that you do, you'll die. And then God created the woman and expected the man to guide and to lead that woman in spiritual matters, to make sure that we don't get into trouble there. And so God has called us to be spiritual leaders. Even in our text today, we see words like what? Sanctify, to set apart. Washing of the water with the word of God. Without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. And so a man, to be a spiritual leader, he is responsible for the holiness of his home. So whether it's what you do, whether it's what your wife does, whether it's what your children do, as the head of the home, Fellows, we've got a responsibility to make sure that we uphold a holy and righteous standard. So the movies that are watched, the TV shows that are watched, the music that is listened to, the books that are read, the magazines that are read, how we spend our time, how we talk to one another. This ultimately comes down to headship, whether or not we as husbands are going to take spiritual leadership to ensure that our homes reflect the image, the nature, and the character of God. We are called to be spiritual leaders. He calls us here to do something active though. He says, wash their wives with the water of the word. Wash here does literally mean to bathe. Not physically here. I couldn't do that anyway because my wife takes showers at like 300 degrees. I could cook a turkey in that shower. 
But he does call us to wash them with the water of the word, to bathe them. So it's an active thing that we do. Men, God calls us to scrub our families down using not just our personal opinions, but using the word of God. So I think at a baseline, it means, men, God is calling us to lead our homes in the reading and the application of the word of God. Is that something you've ever done? I don't say this out of guilt, friends. Did you grow up with that, men? Did your dads read the word of God to you? My dad did maybe twice to me growing up, so it wasn't a habit. It's something he had done, but it wasn't a habit. Is that something that you're willing to do, though, to wash your family with the water of the word of God? You say, that's a completely foreign concept to me. Well, I've got a few steps here for you. You can follow. Number one, set to initiate, right? This is what it means to lead. You initiate. It's never happened before, but we're going to start now, like Nehemiah at the wall. Our fathers lived one way, but from here on out, our family's going to live this way because God calls us to that. And so we schedule a time, man. We tell our families, this is something God wants us to do. He wants us to make it a priority. Now, for us, we found out that doing a family Bible time where I just read a few scriptures, by the way, this doesn't have to take more than, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. It's not a long time. Sometimes ours would go for an hour, though, because the kids started getting into it and getting questions. But initiate a time. Don't wait for your wife to initiate it. Don't wait for your kids to beg for it. They won't. And when you do, fathers, you're going to have to protect that time because as soon as you say, we're going to have a family Bible time, what are you going to hear from everybody else? Ah, I got homework. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. What do we do then? Okay, fine. I guess we can't do it. No. Dads, you have the right as the head of the home to say, you know what, your, your homework is important. Learning algebraic equations is important, but it's not as important as this 15 minutes of time we're gonna take right here. And what you've done is you've put in your child's head that you can, you can fail at algebraic equations later in life. How many of you guys are still using that in your workplace? You know, one, okay. You can fail at algebraic equations in life, but how many of you guys can get through life and completely disregard the word of God, not know Christ as Savior, not let him be the Lord of your home, not let him guide your life or your morals and have it destroy your life? You cannot know algebraic equations, but if your children don't grow up learning the word of God, they are, the world can teach them how to make a living, but only, only you through the word of God can teach them how to make a life. And they need dads to initiate that. So pick a time and don't let them tell you you have homework. Say, homework will wait. You can get to that, but you need to come to this first. And then you sit down and you open up a Bible. And if you don't have a good Bible for this, man, because this can be intimidating, I encourage you to get a good study Bible. I use a MacArthur study Bible. I don't get any commission. But I use a MacArthur study Bible. I think it's the finest one on the market. And what it does is, man, if you're reading through the word of God with your family and your kid, kid goes, dad, what does that mean? and you're a little intimidated, you're not quite sure, you can go, well, let me just look in the Bible here, and at the very bottom of every page, do you know that there's, essentially it's an answer key. <laughs> it tells you a lot of times what these hard things in the Bible that you're reading actually means. And so go out to, oh, what is that shop called? The Sword and Shield, or the Shield of Truth, Sword of Faith, something. It's something spiritual sounding, you got it, you know where I'm talking about. <laughs> go out there or go on Amazon, order yourself a good study Bible. Doesn't have to be this one, but I think this one does a great job. And then you just open up to a book. If you don't know where to start, take a gospel, maybe the gospel of John, and just read through. You don't have to read a whole chapter every night, but just read through for a bit until you find something that seems significant and meaningful. And as best you know how, explain the word of God. You say, well, I don't understand the word of God myself. You can understand some things. God doesn't expect you to teach the things you don't understand. I don't understand everything in the Bible I read the first time I read it. 
Just explain what you do now. Your kids don't expect you to have all the answers. Just read it together. And you know what? Involve the children, because if you don't, if you don't take their phones away, by the way, dads, they're not gonna listen. You take their phones, you set them aside, and you just let them listen. And you read the word of God, and you ask your kids questions. Keep them involved. Let your kids interrupt you with questions. And just read through, and come up with some kind of application. And when you get done, it doesn't have to be earth-shattering, but you went through it, and you showed your children the word of God is central and important to our daily lives. And you do that, and then you ask your kids, what can I pray for you about? And if you've never done this before and you've got teens, they're probably like, you know, they don't have any prayer requests. They might need coaching. Well, I know that you've got a track meet coming up or I know that you have a test coming up or I know that you're trying, you know, why don't we pray for that? Okay. You know, but, and then you pray for them and you let your children, you let your wife hear you bless God for them. You let your family hear you calling out to the creator of the universe to, to just in worship and to, to help you in areas where you need it. And you let them hear this as an example. And when you say amen and get done, you, you let the family go by you like a receiving line and you give them a hug. Maybe kiss those little girls on the head and you let them know how much you love them and you send them off to bed. Ladies, if your husband were to start doing that, would you be supportive of him doing that? No? Okay. Um, ladies, be supportive. If your husband's trying to do this and he pronounces something wrong like we all do sometimes with the Bible, don't correct him. Just let him stumble forward in this experiment of being a spiritual leader in the home. Just thank him for being a part of that. Encourage him. Tell him how much of an encouragement that is to you. I think spiritual leadership also means, dads, that we're the one that makes sure that the family is at church on Sundays. At, I mean, just at a baseline there. Make sure your family is here. If we let, it means that we have to guard our own schedule and our wife's schedule and our children's schedule because you're the head of the home to make sure that they don't just, I'm not talking about never miss for camping or going on a vacation. We all do that. But I'm talking about if your work schedule and your entertainment schedule is such that you are more consistently away from church than at church, you have not made it a priority. And do, will your children take notice of that? They will absolutely take notice of that. And so you help them to modify their work schedule or you help them to not be so involved in school that they're always gone. Well, every Sunday, I can't help it. There's a football game, then there's a basketball game, then there's a volleyball game, and there's always gonna be a game on Sunday because our society doesn't respect God. But you can. If your child never learns how to throw a football well, can they still do okay in life? They can. What if your child never learns to reverence God? What if they never go to church? Can they tank their life? They can and they will. And so dads, we make priority. We make value judgments for our family and we bring them to church. And I've had some parents tell me, I don't like to force my kid to come to church. I let them make all their own decisions when it comes to God. Well, that's interesting because you don't do that in any other area that matters. Do you let your kids pick out what they're gonna eat when they're three? If you do, they're gonna be eating tacos and ice cream bars their whole life. That's what a kid is gonna choose for them. When they're little, what did you make them eat? You made them eat strained peas. They spit it out and you put it back in. They spit it out and you put it back in because you knew, even though you hate this right now, it's good for you in the future and I'm gonna get you to develop a taste for this later. Do you, you don't let your kids pick their own bedtimes, do you? Do you want them going to bed at 2 a.m. after playing video games all night? You make them go to bed. Do you, you let your kids choose to go to school? You know, son, if you don't wanna go to school today, I respect that, I didn't like it either. You make them go to school. What if they don't wanna do homework? Do you make them do that? 
Of course you do, because it's good for them. You make your children do the things that are good for them until they're mature enough to willingly choose to do those things for themselves. The same goes with God. We don't let our kids pick, oh, you know what, God isn't important to me, so I'm gonna put him off. You say, no, God is important, and while you're in our home, you will come to church and you will be a part of what we're doing because it's good for you. God loves you and you need to hear the gospel. Dads, we can, we can have that kind of authority in our kids' lives. God has granted you that authority. Remember what he called you in Ephesians 5? You're the head. And sometimes the head has to take leadership and make sure that their family doesn't put God on the back burner. I'll show you a couple slides here. Baptist Press and Promise Keepers once did a study on the impact of fathers and mothers taking their kids to church. If mothers take their children to church, they found out that about one in 50 children will continue on making God a priority on into the college years and beyond. That's 2%. That's pretty low. Anybody wanna guess what happens to that percentage when dads bring their wives and children to church with them? That number jumps up to as high as 75%. Dads, does it make a difference that you are spiritually leading your family and not just letting your wife do that thing that's good for your kids? It makes a huge difference. It's the difference of two to up to 75% of children taking their faith seriously later in life. So dad, God's, God has called us to be leaders in our homes, spiritual leaders. He's also, number three, called us to be a provider. And I'm not just talking about bringing home money to pay the bills here, but we provide for the needs of our wife. In verse 28, it says, in the same way, in the same way as Jesus does, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. God has to say this, because if you tell men, love your wives, we're like, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like to love my wife. God says, let me make it simple. Love her like your body, okay? Do for her what you would want done for yourself. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So for husbands to love their wives as their own body, it means that we are attuned to the needs of our body. Our body communicates with us, doesn't it? You need to take a nap, so we take a nap. Our stomach growls, we get hungry. And so we give men, our bodies, everything that it needs to be healthy. We give it bacon, we give it root beer, we give it Monday night football, that's what we do. We listen to uh, the desires of our body and we try to feed that as best we know how. So to love our wives as our own bodies means that we are attentive to the needs of our mate. We're listening, we are as attentive to our wives as we are our stomach growling. It means we don't necessarily just wait for her to beg us to do something. We're, we're attentive. We're listening for those, those, little, those little nonverbal cues. My wife, just this last week, was, uh, she was preparing for this Thursday night deal with the ladies. And she wasn't asking me to do anything. She just said, uh, I'm sorry, you have to go to a house that's a disaster right now. Yes, that can happen. She had spent so much time working on God's house, she just didn't have time to make the house everything that it needed to be. Now, as a man, I didn't even see it. But I took that verbal cue, and I was like, she needs some help. And I'm alone at the house tonight, and I have other things I could do, but you know what, I'm gonna clean. And so I did, I just cleaned up the house a little bit, and I cleaned like a man cleans. It means I didn't get the comet out, and I didn't scrub the floors or mop, but just picked some things up. And you know that blessed her heart when she came home? You would have thought that I had earned a Nobel Prize, that I had saved a puppy from drowning and cured cancer. That's how she responded to that. But it was just a little, 
is just a little cue that I picked up from her. I need help here. And so that's what it means that we love our wife as we would our own body. I need help in that area. I wish somebody would help me. My wife says, I need help. And even without her vocalizing it, we look and we're attentive to the needs of our wife so as to care for them. And so when our wife is wounded, we care for her. Now, if she is like, if she's like ruptured a major artery, we know to jump into action. We're gonna take her to the hospital, right? But what if that wound is something that's invisible? What if it's a wound that you can't see? Your wife comes back from work or with the children, you meet up with her, she says, honey, I've had a really bad day, and we just sit on our phone. Huh, really? Huh, the bills are playing tonight. You know, and then we just, we just don't really pay attention, we just kinda, uh, uh, and we look at our phones. What does she really want us to do? If we're gonna be attentive to her needs, what would she want us to do? Put the phone back in the pocket, Stop looking to see if the bills are playing tonight, you know? And we, and we listen. And we don't just listen, but what do we do? We, we ask tunneling questions. We try to draw out that pain that she's trying to give up. She's telling you, I have a burden that's too heavy for me. I want you to draw this out of me. What would that look like? Honey, I had a really bad day at work today. Boy, it was tough. Really? What was bad about it? Simple question. Oh, and she'll go on and tell you about it. Wow, that sounds really painful. How did you respond to that? How did that make you feel? Really, did you expect that? And just ask questions that draw details of the question out, and it shows her that you care and that you are free space to share that burden with him. Our wives need that. That's what we would want too. If we have a difficult time, we want to be able to share that with somebody. Our wives are looking to be able for us to do that. So engage her emotionally and ask her questions, draw those things out of her. Ephesians 5 reminds us that he who loves his wife loves himself. You see, God has tied your happiness in the home to how you treat your wife. God won't let us as men be both selfish and happy. We cannot ignore the needs of our wife and be happy. And so you've, you see it right here. That old adage, happy wife, happy life, is a biblical concept. If, you are, if you're treating your wife with tenderness, love, and affection, and, and listening to her, and she is happy, you, when you bless her in that way, it blesses you, because the Bible says the two of you are one flesh. So any good that I do to her, I'm actually doing for myself. Bible wants us to see that any love I show her is an extension of love to myself. He says in verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh. No one ever treated his own flesh in a bad way. You know, we, you, you go out to your car today and you, you see David Huffman out there in the, in the parking lot and he is punching himself in the stomach and he's breaking dishes over his head. You would rightly conclude there's something wrong with David. He's behaving a little strangely today. No one ever hated his own body. I don't just kick a wall to, to, you know, to stub my own toe on purpose. The Bible says our wife being one flesh with us, nobody ever hated his own flesh. Nobody ever hated, should never hate his own wife. You, wouldn't, you don't like it, men, when you go to work and your boss is shouting you down. So why would we shout down our wives? You don't want to be treated abusively. Why would we treat our wives abusively? And again, let me pause here once again. Men, we don't, we don't hit our wives. I mean, this is so basic, right? We don't hit our wives. We don't physically use the law of the jungle and Darwinian theology to, you know, might makes right. We don't, we don't force her to do things that we wanna do through abuse. 
And ladies, if you are in that situation, don't be one of those that waits six times for your husband to beat you before you do something. You call the church office and we will help you. We will help both sides of the party. Or we have a hotline here we can throw up. Ladies, you can call this number. Whatever you do though, you get out of the blast radius. You don't stay under an abusive relationship. No man ever hated his own flesh. But rather, what does he do do? Verse 29, he says, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, when I use those two terms right there, nourish and cherish, do some of you guys kind of groan right there? I'm guessing Gary has never used the term nourish or cherish in his lifetime. Okay, it's not a term that men, it just comes up naturally in our conversation like, you know, golf cart, bass boat, and delicatessen. These are words that we like. But nourish, cherish, you kind of feel like you got to turn your man card in, use the word cherish. Well, you know, Chris, did you, do you cherish your bass boat? You know, we don't use cherish. But the Bible nonetheless commands us to figure out what nourish and cherish means because this is how Jesus loved the church and he's asking us to do this, these two things for our wife, nourish and cherish. Now nourish is a word that means to feed, to shepherd. Now if you have sheep at home, we raised hogs, but if you have sheep at home to shepherd them, you are taking care of all of their needs because you realize as I take care of them, my future depends on these sheep and their health. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the, the wool off them so it can be all free and clean. And I'm gonna take the, you know, rub oil into them, get rid of the parasites. I'm gonna feed them. I'm gonna lead them to green pastures. That's what God does for us in Psalm 23. The Bible says that's what it means to nourish your wife. You realize that her welfare is essential to your success as a human. And so you're looking for every possible need that she might have. That means that we are students of our wives. We're aware of her habits, her needs, and her desires. We know how to do that with, with fish. Where I grew up, North Iowa, the, your, your trophy fish was a northern pike, maybe a muskie, but a northern pike. And as a man, if we want that bad enough, we can learn the habits of a northern pike. You know that you have to go somewhere between mid-May and February to go get one, you know you need to be looking for about two to 15 feet of water. You're looking for a rocky bed or a weed bed underground because you know they love to hide in those areas. You're gonna choose the right lure. You're probably gonna pull a spoon out because you know it's going to reflect the white underbelly you know, of the sun. It looks like the white underbelly of their prey and you're gonna get a fast reel and you're gonna, you're gonna reel it along the, uh, just above the weed bed because you know that a, that a uh, northern pike is a lion-weight ambush predator. And so you know if you just do all of these right things, you got him and you landed this guy. The problem is there's a lot of us men, we've done more research on how to please a northern pike than we have our wives. You know what it takes to make a northern pike happy and bring him home. Do you know what it takes to make your wife happy, to bring her home and to keep her happy? We've already had practice doing it. I mean, most of you guys, you dated your wife at one point in time or another. I mean, do we have any mail order brides in here today? Any arranged marriages? Anybody from Russia? Probably not too many. Most of you guys dated your wife, and when you did that, you probably didn't just you know, arrive at the same place as your wife did. You, know, you, you researched her, you studied her, you figured out what she likes, you went to her best friend. What does she like to eat? What does she like to listen to? And so you got data on her because your intention was to use that knowledge to please her. 
And so you took her out on a date and her, her friend told you she likes pasta, so you took her to the Olive Garden, big spender. And you found out that she likes country music, so you put on, turn on a little Trisha Yearwood or something on the radio. And you, you found out that she likes puppies. And so being really clever, you took her out to PetSmart and you held puppies together. And you made her happy. You made the whole night just about her and what she likes to do. We know what it takes to nourish our wives. We gathered intel. We gathered knowledge so that we can gain understanding. That, by the way, is what 1 Peter 3, 7 is talking about. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Understanding means you know how they think. You know what they like, you know what they dislike, what they love, what they fear, what their hopes and dreams and goals are. That's what it means to be un- live with them in an understanding way, that husbands are commanded by God to continue to learn about this woman that you married. Did you learn everything about one another just when you said, I do? Not unless you dated for like 45 years. You've got, there's things we still need to learn about our mate, and so we take them out on dates, and we don't just look at our phones. We talk, and we share, and we ask questions. This is what we do. That's what it means to nourish our wives. We're meeting those emotional needs. We're looking to meet those physical needs like a farmer might do for a sheep. But then he brings in that other word. (coughs) Cherish. I don't even like saying the word. For whatever reason, it just kind of rakes. It's like moist. It's like one of those words that people just don't even like hearing. Uh, So for me, cherish just kind of, it's not a word that I use. It's very, it goes against the grain of how I think. Cherish, for a lot of you men, it's a foreign term. It's like the word taffeta. And no, it's not saltwater candy, Mike. Taffeta, you know, it's cherish. What does that even mean? I don't, I don't talk like cherish. Cherish is a word, it means literally to warm, to come alongside of, to warm somebody. It means to brood. It's the term that a mother hen would use for her chicks. You're warming, you're, you're, she's snuggling them. It's the exact same word, by the way, that's used in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. It says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother takes care of her own children. Have you ever watched a new mom with her baby? How is she? Is she careless, that baby? (laughs) Not for very long. You know, she's very careful. Don't touch him, don't touch him. Did you wash your hands? Did you use... Uh, antibiotic, something on there, ointment or whatever you put on there, you know. That stuff that makes your hands clean, did you do that? Okay, but don't touch their face. Just touch the clothes, you know. And a mother, very protective. And you see that mom by herself and she's putting her nose in that baby's face and she's smelling the baby oil and she's touching the baby's cheek, okay. That's the word God uses to describe what cherish looks like. This is what God is calling men to be with their husband. <laughs> Take that one back. Rewind. God is commanding men to do that with their wives. They may not have baby oil in their hair like the babies did, but you know what? We, we, we warm them. You've heard it here, ladies. God commands your husbands to snuggle you. You owe me now. I fully expect offerings to go up this next week. 
God commands us to warm, to brood. The terms he uses is like a mother hen. The term he uses is like a nursing mother with a newborn baby. That's how tender, I don't care how rough you are out there in the world, how you take deer and you can gut them open with a butter knife and pull their guts out and you're that kind of, you're that kind of man. But when it comes to your wife, there is a certain side of you that you show to her that is tender and you touch her face and you tell her how much you love her and how sweet she is to you. That may seem really foreign to you, but this is the kind of role that God has called us to, to be strong and yet gentle. Isn't that how Jesus was? The same Jesus that made a whip of cords and drove people from the temple and overturned tables is the same one who said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. That same Jesus who is mighty and strong and who can face the cross without uttering a single word is the same man who can want to gather you and I tenderly and carefully. It shows both sides of the image of God. And so men, you're not giving up your man card by being tender and sweet with your wife and kids. We're being obedient to cherish our wife. Cherish, it's a word that means to show that affection. And I just need to say this, affection in a non-sexual way Okay? We don't just show sweetness and kindness to our wife when we expect a return on the investment, you know, when you shave before bed. You know, you, you, we show cherishing type of things because it's who we are. It characterizes our life. And so we put our arm around our wife. We hold her hand. We, maybe you rub her shoulders. You scratch her back or scratch her head or you, you rub her feet. Okay, after a hard day of work, especially if you're married to a nurse or a teacher or somebody who's on her feet all day, and you, sh- you cherish her. You, you do these sweet, warming things that show affection. Now, some of you men are thinking, who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> I'm not an affectionate man by nature. I didn't grow up. My dad was a World War II something or other, and I'm just, this is the way I am. I'm not that kind of guy. God, did God's standard change? Does it say husbands cherish your wives if you're a cherishing kind of person, if you're a tender person? No, it says this is the standard of God. It means that men, if you didn't grow up in an affectionate home, you're gonna have to try harder than other people. But can I tell you, for those of you men, when your wives, you, you know who you're married to, one of these guys. If he isn't naturally an affectionate person and starts showing affection, how much more will that mean to you? It's gonna mean an awful lot because you know he is bucking up against his own flesh to do this. I didn't think I'd have to say this, but I've actually talked to men and women before where the husband says, I wanna show affection, my wife, she won't take it. And she'll jump in and chime in and say, yep, that's right, I don't like being touched. Now keep away from me, I don't like anybody touching me, I don't like anybody touching me ever. Can I tell you with all the love in my heart here, friends, if you're one of these people who refuse to give or receive affection, something God has commanded for the family to give and receive, it's it's a symptom. It's not just your personality. It's something that is within your personality that doesn't belong there. I'm not calling everybody to the same kind of personality here. What I'm saying is God has commanded us to give and receive affection. If you cannot do it and you recoil and you pull back and you don't like being touched by anybody, it's a symptom of something that's going on underneath the surface. There may be ongoing conflict, unforgiveness, a betrayal that hasn't been you know, dealt with. It might be due stemming from a past abuse that you've received, but friends, it's a symptom. God doesn't want you to stay there. God wants you ladies to allow your husbands to show affection to you. 
And if you can't do it, let me encourage you, you call a biblical counselor this week. It's not something, oh, you only do that if you're in a really bad place. If you can't receive touch from your husband or wife, you're in a really bad place. Calling a biblical counselor is not a, a, an admission of defeat. It's, it's the sign of somebody who wants to nourish and cherish their wife. Somebody who wants to take this relationship seriously and to do what is necessary for it. How important is that affection? Let me tell you. When it is shown, it is a gospel testimony to others. My wife and I, we were living in Kunming, China. We were just walking up to the Ai Chin Hai shopping mall. And my wife and I, we just naturally just hold hands. It's just part of our relationship. This is what we do. And we don't think anything of it. We're walking up there and some, some Chinese lady who doesn't know us runs up to us and starts a conversation. She's like, and she can tell that we, you know, we're not in our 20s. But um, at least I don't look like it, Amber does, but you know, I don't. So she just assumed, she's like, wow, you've been married a long time and yet you're still holding hands and tears began to run down her eyes. She was in a tough relationship and she just was so touched that people are willing to show just public affection in that way, just as simple as holding hands in public, that it touched her heart enough that she came across to us and began to ask us why. And do you know what we were able to share with her? We love like this because Christ loved us. It was a gospel opportunity, and my wife met with her on a couple of other occasions after that, continued to share the gospel. Our homes, I've always told my wife, our homes can be the greatest source of pain or the greatest gospel testimony that we have when you have children that are honoring and obedient, when you have husbands and wives that are cherishing and nourishing and loving one another like this. The world doesn't see that, not normally. And when they see it in you, they know there's something different about you. What? And so God has called us to be nourishing and cherishing, loving leaders. God has called us to be a lover. He's called us to be a spiritual leader in our home. He has called us to provide nourishment and cherishing to our wives. This is what he's called us to. And can I tell you, when you do this, husbands, this is how we gently lead our wives. Remember we talked about this is a dance. And when a husband leads, it's not like you're not some ninth grade boy jerking his mate, his partner across the room and seeing how fast you can do something and running her into things. You're not like, get over here. That's not what true leadership looks like. It's gentle because she knows she can trust you. She knows you care for her. And so it's just a little bump on the waist. It's a little movement of the hand. It's just a look. It's a gentle word. That's how men lead. And can I just tell you, if you're one of these kind of leaders who, who, who's a lover, who's a spiritual leader, who nourishes and cherishes your wife, she's gonna gladly put her hand in yours because after all, you've already laid down your life for her. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for the example that Jesus gives us. That when you call us to love our wives as Christ loved the church, you don't just leave us up to ourselves to figure out what that looks like. You have provided us a, an object lesson in Jesus and has called us to walk in his steps. And God, I realize as we preach these things, this is hard. We're not talking to a bunch of perfect couples here. We're not a perfect couple. We're talking to people who suffer and who go through pain, people who have hurt one another, people who maybe still haven't forgiven one another for certain things in their relationship. God, I, it's my prayer that in this church we will restore our homes so that our homes can be beacons of light, can be the nucleus of spiritual development for our children as they develop in that nest of the marriage. Father, we need your grace. We need Jesus to show us the way. We need him to fill our hearts with love so that we can agape our mates, 
to love them in a way that maybe they don't deserve, but we love because Jesus loved us like this. We love because it's who we are. God, as the leaders, help us as men to take the first step in restoring these marriages to not just functional Oregon Trail type relationships, but that we would be lovers and leaders and providers, nourishing and cherishing our mates, even as Jesus did that very same thing for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.